0: and the world of your dreams. On today's episode, my guest is Joe Bernstein. Joe is a coach. He works mostly with men, and he's in a transformational space, whether it's around relationships, whether it's around the food you eat or career. I experienced Joe to be an incredibly dynamic coach and someone who can help in all areas of life. And in this conversation, we cover all sorts of ground. We cover his experience with psychedelics and how that has completely expanded and opened up his worldview. We've talked about his personal journey with weight loss. He was once 150 pounds heavier. I think he was 340 pounds and he got down to 190 and even lower. And that informs a lot of the way that he coaches as well around the psychology of eating. And we talk about men's work and rites of passage. So at a really high level, men don't really go through a process of initiation. We go to school and there's a very formulaic way in which we grow. And then in our 20s, we typically go crazy and party. And then we're kind of just thrown out into the real world without having gone through a particular set of challenges that help us become a more whole, integrated human. So we spend a lot of time there. And we talk about anything that contributes to consciousness, love, our full humanity, full aliveness, all of my favorite topics basically boiled into one conversation together. And Joe provides all sorts of wisdom, all sorts of really relatable experiences. He talks a little bit about repression of feelings and anger in his own life. And I think that whether you identify as a man or a woman, you are going to get so much out of this conversation that I was like a kid in a candy store as I interviewed him. So settle in, take a deep breath. (sighs) and enjoy what Joe has for us today. Joe, welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning, my friend.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I imagine it'll be very meaningful.
0: <laughs> I, I hope it will. I, I certainly trust that it will be meaningful. Knowing you, there's gonna be plenty of uh, gold that comes out of this. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And I, I wanted to start with you, Joe, by asking the same thing I ask almost every single one of my guests. Mm -hmm. what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up
1: well that's quite it's quite a question it's quite a question so my dinner table you know like multiple things come up one Mm -hmm. thing comes up is that we didn't have that like stereotypical okay every night of the week dad's home by six and dinner's on the table My family had a very interesting, you know, split as far as household responsibilities and as far as gender and my dad would work full time. And sometimes when I work part time and sometimes she'd work full time. And so we often kind of Monday through Thursday, people just, you know, dinner was made and someone ate when they got home from soccer practice and someone ate before they went to the rehearsal for the thing they were in. But we always had, when, when I turned adolescent, my mom got really serious about Friday night, Shabbat dinner. And then shortly after got very serious about like Sunday morning bagels and lox, and obviously I'm Jewish, <laughs> but yeah, when I got into middle school, my oldest sister got into high school, it became these great rituals and I probably un- undervalued them at the time. Right. But what was beautiful is my family has a lot of challenge around food. Like I come from a background of part of what launched me into coaching is having this whole like social romantic, mindset, emotional transformation that resulted in huge weight loss. I spent my life over most of my life over 300 pounds once I was like in high school until I was about 31. And so my family had a lot of struggles with food. So dinner table, brunch table, breakfast table, there's a lot of tension there. There's a lot of emotional eating, overeating, there's a lot of energy around always trying to diet and figure out the newest Mm -hmm. 80s or 90s diet thing that of course was based on terrible science and never worked and that actually backfired a lot of the time. So it's that juxtaposed with like my mom created this extraordinarily welcoming environment. There was always extra food, there was always encouragement to invite friends over. There was always, we we were a family of five, there was always, you know, eight to 10 at the table, right. Uh, And so that was this really beautiful thing, the food was never great. You know, my parents are great cooks. <laughs> but, but, but it, it, looking back was really meaningful and beautiful. And uh, so all these complex dynamics around food and weight and, and all the emotions that are stirred up in that were there, but tons of, of love and ritual in some ways. And I, I didn't even know it or understand it for so long in my life, how special that was. Mm-hmm. And then the Sunday, uh, you know, bagels and lox thing was something I loved that. I loved that very much. It was delicious. We're not the kind of family that my parents bickered a lot, but we weren't the kind of family that like me and my sisters fought at the table right. right and crazy like that. It was usually chaotic in our own weird kind of Bernstein way, but uh-huh. but pretty pretty calm as well too. It was like a safe safe zone almost mm. in, in the household because there was a lot of emotional chaos going mm. on otherwise, especially between my parents, which of course trickled down to me and my sisters. So it's a great question. I could go on forever about that yeah. question actually. Mm. the
0: the, there were lots of curiosities that arose for me but the that last bit about the end around the emotional chaos so Mm -hmm. one of one of the questions I was going to have for you was was there any expectation of how you were supposed to be or who you were supposed to be from your parents and like did the emotional chaos contribute at all to the direction you eventually decided to go with your college
1: career and anything like that absolutely I mean Wow, what, what another, another one to unpack. So, really, you know, the emotional chaos had a lot of impacts. You, the first question you asked was, you know, was there a lot of expectations about who we should and shouldn't be? Yes and no. I had the privilege of parents that didn't, that supported us in being different, didn't tell us we had to do a certain profession, didn't pressure us to have great grades didn't tell us we had to be the best on the football field or, you know, the best singer or the best anything. They were very supportive. And they didn't drive a lot of expectations, um, which is quite a relief. It's quite a burden lifted compared to how many people in our culture are raised. But that also leaves a little bit of a gap. No Mm -hmm. one's really pushing you. No one's checking homework, right? No (laughs) one's like, really telling you to apply yourself, which often at times left me with low expectations of myself. And that's mm. how I started a lot of my life. It's like I just didn't expect much. There's an unconscious message being sent there of like, yeah, it's not worth the effort, right, mm. and that's certainly simplifying it quite a bit. And there's all these subtle expectations, whether or not we put them on people explicitly, There's there's subtler expectations. One that I hope we talk about is how a lot of men and boys are socialized to be kind and nice and sweet. And they come from families where it's where they're told it's okay to be sensitive. And very often then, you know, that results in masking and hiding and and fearing and, and not showing the edgier parts of ourselves, the darker parts of ourselves, the anger, you know, the fear, the angst. And so then that becomes dangerous, right? So we can get to that later. So that's a really great question about expectations. Cause it's always a double-edged sword when people are given high expectations and they're pressured a lot, that creates a lot of shame and performance based ways of creating value yeah. for self, but it also creates, you know, a lot of skills and a lot of capacities to take care of oneself and a lot of abilities to get recognized. And so everything has, has the paradox in both sides, emotional chaos and how it impacted my future. Wow. Yeah. Because they're, but basically, my parents had a lot of verbal argumentation a lot of the time. Just like a lot of, um, I love them to death, maybe they'll listen to this, maybe they won't. They're still alive, they're still together, God bless them. But they didn't have a lot of emotional maturity, I would say. They didn't have the tools that my generation had. They didn't have the focus on individuals and expect and, and allowance of emotions. And they didn't, therapy wasn't a the cool thing back then. And <laughs> there weren't coaches like you and I. And, you know, <laughs> people were, you know, maybe doing psychedelics and stuff, but it was like at Woodstock or something, or, or, you know, in a field with friends at music festivals. I mean, there were people doing explorations in very therapeutic ways, but that wasn't the norm. So they just didn't have a lot of emotional maturity is the way I put it. And so my parents argued a lot. And it was emotionally violent and loud. And sometimes it was just calm, but bickering. And it was this kind of sticky energy. So That impacted me because I became someone like many people who come from kind of constant daily low level trauma, Mm. whether it's poverty and being hungry, or whether it's being bullied every day, or whether it's, you know, like, emotional, uh, lack of safety in the home, in the home space, but whether for whatever it is, physical violence, any reason, Um, there's a vigilance, there's, there's a vigilance to my observation, my knowing my seeing of people. So I was from a very young age, really able to pick up on subtle communication, able to pick up on facial expressions. I'm only learning now at 40 that I, th- I was born really feeling people's energetics, mm-hmm. or maybe I adapted to feel the energy from people to know what's coming um, because they were very sweet, very loving, very supportive parents, very kind to each other, except when they exploded into rage bombs, I was very similar. So I was kind, sweet, didn't want to show anger, but then like, you know, had problems with rage in my teens and 20s. Mm. So essentially all of it led me down the path. Having some emotional minefields to work through made me even more sensitive, more tuned, more aware uh, of human beings. I'd, I've always done work where it's about creating relationship or about creating culture or helping people live into a vision or, or values or a mission, even back in my old retail career. Mm-hmm. And so I believe that those skills in many ways came from having to adapt and learn to, to, to fit into a life where there was a lot of emotional uncertainty. But it also caused a lot of the negative beliefs that I had, you know, I was obese, and I saw two parents that were fighting all the time. So it was really easy to think, well, I'm never going to be attractive. And you know, love isn't really safe anyway. So maybe relationships aren't for me. Love isn't for me. Sex isn't for me. And I believe one of my coping strategies for emotional chaos was to feel very emotionally overwhelmed. And so I would numb out and I had a lot of like addictive tendencies with food and uh, pornography and marijuana and like, Mm -hmm. never anything hardcore, never one substance, but a lot of addiction to consumption of things that didn't help me feel good, except for in the moment. And so when I finally went through my divorce, and like lost the weight and started diving into all the deep emotional transformational work, and identity work and men's work and all that stuff, I was just ready to shed all of those things that came the negative things, the, the actual emotional weight that came from living that way, the negative beliefs, I was just ready to and if it didn't have all of those physical challenges, emotional challenges, spiritual challenges, relational challenges, I, I wouldn't be someone that, that one day decided he was gonna learn to be different and then being able to learn and apply different you know skills to transform. I wouldn't be a guy who decided to go out on a limb and start helping other people. And and now I've been doing that for six years and I, I, I love it. I love the lifestyle, I love the work. So I hope that answers the question. Yes, yeah.
0: yes it does In in spades, my friend. So one one thing that's coming up for me it in doing a little research before this conversation and you you've named it to a certain extent already in mm. in your answers you didn't seem to think very much of yourself in mm. a, a number of different ways so one was as a lover yeah one was maybe professionally one was about your your size and your health
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I don't experience you to be that way at all no. these days. No, there's a lot. I know there's a lot that went into that. And mm-hmm. so what were, was there a moment where I try me be careful around this? Cause I know that it's, it's seductive to think like there's just this rock bottom yeah. and then like things click together and you're able mm-hmm. to shift into another gear or something. But right. were there, I know lots of other people who can relate to what you're sharing in your story who yeah. stay stuck there forever. Were there any paradigmatic moments that helped you realize I, I do deserve to I want to pursue this and I deserve to stay at a healthier weight yeah. and to have a career I love and etc.
1: Yeah, yes, there was. So what ended up happening was I stumbled my way into a career that I actually loved and was good at. And I got the chance to lead, you know, stores for both Corporation. So I was like, I like in my late 20s, leading sometimes multiple stores, some multi-million dollar stores that had extraordinary level of amazing product and company values and culture. And and I stumbled my way into getting married. I married like the second person I ever dated because uh, I was very scarcity based when it came to love. And I found myself in a better lifestyle than I thought than I ever gave myself credit for. You know, like. Two incomes, no kids, you know, had a nice condo. I could walk to my store. I was well known around the whole country. I've been with that company since I was 20. Life was good. We traveled, we ate well, and everything fell apart. 2012, 2013, I was going through some health crises related to my eating behaviors and my weight. I I had shredded up a finger because I was trying to play Iron Chef while I was on pain medication four kidney stone. I eventually needed a kidney stone surgery and then had like 31 stitches in the one above one, the first knuckle of a finger, an important finger. I was just going through some physical pain. My now ex-wife walked in the door one day and was like, Hey, I've been in therapy a few months and I think I might want out of this relationship. And I used to be a guy who was like asked to jump into every big opportunity in my career. Like, hey, do you want this store? Hey, this we're gonna open this one in Orlando. Hey, we're gonna do this. I'd realized that I'd, I'd said no enough. I was comfortable enough and said no enough that they stopped asking me. And so, like, my mentor got this big promotion. A friend of mine got this big promotion to a store. They used to always ask me if I wanted to, you know, go run. It was the big dog in the area. Uh, and I realized my career had run flat too. Like, I was doing it. It was working, but I'd lost passion and I stopped looking for the next level. All that happened in about three period i woke up to all that in a three period when about six months later we couldn't work out a relationship my ex-wife dumped me i was past that physical challenge i went through the the stages of grief in like three or four days around the marriage now that's not fully true because i had to go back a few years later and really dig into the grief and really feel it to open myself and open my heart deeper but it, it was this like succession of like, I could see and feel these stages of grief. And what happened at one point was I remember thinking, you know, Joe, there are people that teach skills about how to show up differently socially. There are people that t- teach skills about how to regulate emotions. There are people that teach skills around how to date. There are people that teach others how to actually take ownership of their life and their body and their weight and their health. In your professional life, you've always taken full responsibility. If you don't have a skill, you get it. If you need support, you ask for it. If the job needs extra hours, you put them in, right? And you teach that to your team. You teach this radical responsibility model, this, this ownership model of being in your career. And you lead that way. How come your whole entire personal life, you've acted like that's not a possible, even a possibility for you? So it was, it was like this wake up call about a week after my ex-wife left me where it was like, holy crap, I've completely abdicated responsibility because I've never believed I should or deserve to have a great life. And now I realize there's something possible here. There's something Mm -hmm. possible. It's just an opportunity. The life that I defaulted into was better than I even gave myself credit for. And now it's falling apart. And so what can I create from here? It was like an automatic response to that trauma of what do I what can I create who do I want to become what am I ready to take responsibility for um and then I had a lot of time on my hands because I was no longer in a relationship and I just put it all into like hey we're going to study we're going to transform we're going to go to the meeting we're going to go to the retreat we're going to do all the things I'm going to work out you know twice a day five days a week like it just shifted all of that energy where I could have got stuck in that, that low spot, that down moment. Here I am now feeling liberated and having all this time on my hands and no longer in a toxic relationship. And it was like growing six pairs of wings. So yes, there was like a very short period of time where everything changed and it woke me up. Now it is seductive to hear that, as you said, the truth is I was in the right place, the right time. You know, 31 years old, no kids, uh, had already lost like 50 pounds out of 150. So I started thinking like, man, maybe maybe some women will start looking at Joe. And I just put the pedal to the metal. I did a lot of work. I mean, I I made personal growth a full time job and made my full time job like just fit it in around them. Not not fully true, but I really <laughs> put in. I legitimately probably put in 15, 20 hours a week. That was all I did for like a year or two was things that were related to personal growth and and dating because then I was like, well, now I'm going to date with this new outlook and confidence and body. So a lot of work put in over many years, but the the vision for it, the possibility for it, the catalyst in flipping my mindset was actually very quick over a few days. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Were there any particular... 15, 20, 15 to 20 hours a week is a mm-hmm. nice amount. Was it did that comprise of was it reading books, was it attending workshops, courses, mm-hmm. seminars, going on retreats, was it was it all of the yeah. above? And if so, old, yeah. like yeah, what what were some of the things that stood out to you the most as like that they, they stick with you today?
1: Yeah. I really started digging into books about well-being and emotions and relationships and dating, our, our couples therapist gave us the five love languages. Mm-hmm. And I, st- I was reading it and like falling in love with learning it when we were still together before we separated. And I remember thinking like, uh, this is a new addiction, like how people work, I'm going to study it even more because I already did that for like sales and leadership and management. But I'm going to study it on this personal life side. And so I read tons of books. Uh, I listened to tons of, you know, podcasts were still like, not as popular as they are today, 2013, I listened to tons of podcasts for men. There was only a few at the time, another 7,000 and And I did some online programs with like a couple of different dating or social success coaches. A lot of people have heard of Dr. Robert Glover with No More Mr. Nice Guy. Yes. I did a few of his like online courses in his Total Personal Integration University or whatever he used to call it or maybe still calls it. That same year, I signed up for a Mankind Project weekend, so I did a um, men's rites of passage initiation weekend, and then was in this community of men that were doing the inner work. There's a lot. What what really stands you know, what really stands out to me is I really believe the foundation of being able to do that all was actually recognizing how my default is anxiety and negativity. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And that's just something that both lives in my mindset, in the language that I use in the beliefs that I would hold, but also in my body. Mm And so I learned that, wow, eating better and working out daily, I feel great. I have 100 pounds less anxiety than I did. I had 100 pounds less negativity. And so really there was something truly profound. I stumbled upon a way of doing the embodiment work and the mindset work and the nervous system work and the social relationship work because I know a lot of people that do all this inner work but then they don't apply it to relationships or to their you know to their their kind of like work constellations. It's just something they learn, right? So mm-hmm. I would apply right away. So That that's the key, I think, is like we're doing both the mind and body work and, you know, down the line, eventually the spirit work came, but that combination is important too often. I see work to be healthy and the self care industry and people pointing people all towards like, well, you know, yoga and meditation without actually having the mindset work. And a lot of the time I see this like hyper masculine, super type A, like capitalist focused personal development work. That's all mindset. It's all brain. It's all headist as I like to call it. And it's without the embodiment with it's without, you know, like actually recognizing that you can't self-talk away a deeply anxious nervous system. You just can't. Right. So, so that's what I would say is that combination between the two. Number one thing I learned though, was speed to application. There was this dating coach. I did his online program with like a hundred other di- dudes, and he would say almost every session, "Those of you that go out and apply this stuff in the next 40 hours are going to transform. 48 hours are going to transform." I just would listen. I would do it. Um, so that's a big one. It's just like speed to action. What you're learning, apply it. What you're listening to, apply it that book that tells you you're supposed to do the work, the, you know, the worksheet, but you just listen to the audio book instead and keep going during your workout or your drive and never do that worksheet. Stop. Don't listen to that book anymore until you go do the worksheet and Mm. do the worksheet tonight. Right. So like, there is a lot of that, just the energy of, of, of doing was really important along with both working in the mind and the body.
0: Hmm. Wow. There's, there's so much in there. So, one of the things I'm struck by in your response, as I'm, as I'm piecing together the first 30 or so minutes of this conversation, it doesn't seem like that was something that was naturally ingrained in you as you were growing up. It wasn't like a conditioned tendency or pattern of yours. It, it seems right. like it was actually almost the opposite. Not, not mm-hmm. too much was expected of you. It wasn't, there wasn't a lot of structure necessarily. you just were able to slack off and not do it. And now you're talking about this completely 180 view of if I hear it in an audio book or read it in the book, and there's a worksheet to do, I'm going to go and apply it immediately, right? I'm not going to just internalize it and intellectualize my way through things like, I'm going to go out there and do this. And two of the things that you brought up, I think were they might have been really crucial in you being able to do that the nervous system and nervous yep. system regulation and embodiment. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if, if as I tie all of these things together were there were there embodiment practices or ways that you regulated your nervous system that allowed for that shift to happen it's it seems like a complete mm-hmm. 180.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So one was going from never working out to sometimes working out 10 times a week, that'll change your nervous system. (laughs) So I mean, I don't advocate anyone work out 10. times. I, I was a little bit, I went a little crazy for a couple of years with this mission, mission, you know, recreate Joe, and I'm glad I did. But it wasn't grounded. Like if I was someone who was 10 years down the line, more taxing career, had a family, I couldn't, I couldn't apply the way I did. So I want to be really honest about that. Um, But one of the number one things I learned was breathwork and and not necessarily in the way we talk about it today, not in the Wim Hof, uh, Selma, like these holotropic breathwork, literally just learning to integrate conscious breathing into my daily life was Mm -hmm. super important when I would hear the negative self-talk or for me it wasn't often that negative shame-based self-talk it was here's why you can't here's why you can't here's the risk here's the reason why it won't work it's a lot of like can't energy instead of i'm mm-hmm. a piece of shit energy like a lot of a lot of yeah. people have um so i would just slow it down i would take three deep breaths i would do a little body scan that was so simple and so important. The other thing was, I spent about a year and a half off of caffeine completely, because I mm-hmm. recognize like, oh, I'm, a, I'm an anxious dude. Uh, this isn't helping. <laughs> this is not helping, you know, like, three cups of coffee a day is not helping. And that's also when I learned that I'm very sensitive to caffeine, I just was numb to it my whole life. Right? Like, nowadays, like don't do Monday through Friday caffeine. And when I do, I can feel it like I can feel it in not good ways. So that, that, you know, betr- working out, having a little breath going was important and lowering caffeine was important. These are all really easy things we can do to manage nervous system. Now, I want to talk a little about embodiment because you, you know, you asked like embodiment practices. Yeah.
0: Well, um, just, I, I, can, if I can yeah. interject just one second before embodiment, I really yeah. want to get there, but can you just run us through one, one rep maybe for like sure. a, as an audience member, like let's mm-hmm. just say they have an anxious thought that they can't do it, right? It's, it's very mm-hmm. common or I'm up for promotion at work or I'm, I want to approach this man or woman that's like mm-hmm. feels a little bit out of my reach and there's this, that energy feels really present. Like what, would, what was a rep that you would take yourself through in, in a moment like that?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I would often combine, I would do, I would flip. I would flip the negative thought into like a positive thought or a possibility-based thought or an affirmation. All right. So you know, let's say it was like, oh, I'm not going to talk to her. Like women, women and me don't click, you know, like I don't women don't dig me. It would be just you flip it. Women love me, mm-hmm. right? So and then I would simply just if I was in a position where I could close my eyes, I would, but if I wasn't, I would just do it like this. I mean, let's just say you close your eyes. You start breathing in through the nose. I recommend people breathing the nose super slow. And breathing out through the mouth twice as slow your lung capacity will dictate how long so i'm not going to tell you you know oh breathe in for nine breaths like maybe only breathe for six so do it slow in breath slow out breath do three reps and on every in breath say your new positive thought or say your affirmation and some of that can be an intellectual bypass at times right? You still feel the fear, you still have some deeply core negative beliefs in shadow about your lovability about your attractiveness. But it moves us towards action that helps us create new stories around this lovability or the attractiveness. So it it really is that simple. Three Mm -hmm. deep breaths, reframe the situation, take another step. Another thing I would do is uh, I would set a timer for a two minute meditation before I went into anything that I thought, well, I might get like anxious here or, or, you Mm -hmm. know, old Joe, quote unquote, would be wouldn't be confident here. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would go to the bathroom or I'd sit in my car before I got out of the car and I would just do a two minute, um, you know, two minute breath meditation, just simple, breathe in, breathe out, focus on the breath. That would really help. That would really work. So it can actually be that simple. Yes, really can. <laughs> awesome. Really can 30 seconds or so I think or 30 or 90 30 or 90 actually physiologically resets the nervous system. Yeah. From sympathetic to parasympathetic response.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Embodiment. I'm, I'm all ears.
1: Yeah. Oh, I just wanted to say that, you know, embodiments, a tricky thing, because we can go work out. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we're embodying. Mm-hmm. And we can exercise because people often ask, "Well, how'd you lose weight?" I'm like, "Well, you know, I, uh, I ate differently and I exercised more, right?" But but everyone's body, everyone's time, everyone's interest level, everyone's consciousness—they're different. So I very much like to propose like a, 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 a modality-agnostic way of thinking about embodiment and body work and exercise, etc that's something I think is important to share. What's the thing, right? It's core power yoga. It's, you know, P90X, it's, you know, F45, which by the way, these are all great. I love them. I'm probably gonna go sign up for one tomorrow. (laughs) But um, no, I'm serious. I love group, group, group workouts are amazing now. But for me, I needed to establish discipline, I needed to establish boundaries with myself, I needed to establish a sense of being a grounded man connected to masculinity. So at the time, I was all about, you know, sprint intervals and weight training. Over time, my need to to be a, a different human shifts. And what's I think a really amazing practice for embodiment is to be flexible with what you learn to do with your body, make it more about how you're relating to your whole self and how you're relating to the world and what you need to work on and develop more so than just the fitness aspect of it. So there's a time I need to Okay, I need more flexibility. Yoga flew into my life and I took yoga very seriously. Um, you know, there's been a time where I, I wanted to move faster in my career and in my work. I started jogging more, I picked up cycling, right? There's these these metaphorical ways that are actual physical ways of being in, in the world that a lot of us miss the boat on that opportunity to do our recreation and our exercise in relationship to our, our personal growth, our spiritual growth, our relational growth. So I just wanted wanted to say that because I want to advocate for that as the reason for exercise and physical activity beyond the joy of movement, you know, the reason could be, this could be part of your growth path in life. And it's so powerful to do the energetics that align with where you're growing in this world.
0: Mm -hmm. To even
1: expand
0: and expound on that, a big part of my developmental growth in the past year has been embodiment around day-to-day things like I don't know if I get a confrontational email noticing Mm -hmm. the way that my what is my natural posture like what posture do I take what is my heart rate does my temperature my body change at all do I clench my jaw more so it's it's very practical in a day-to-day sense we all have certain patterned ways of of being that if we don't bring awareness to it, Mm -hmm. we will unconsciously default to certain things and and are reactive and don't have any real agency in how we show up. So I love Mm -hmm. that what you laid out for embodiment is wonderful. And Mm -hmm. it's also like that was a big part of my life. And there was there was something still missing because I, I was on a day-to-day basis trying to intellectualize my way through. Right. I shouldn't be angry in this certain <laughs> circumstance, right? Like yeah. I would, uh, rationalize my way through it instead of just noticing, like, how does anger show up in my body mm-hmm. or how does sadness yes. show up in my body? And what does it, what does it mean? What is it communicating to me? Yes. What's,
1: that's so vital, Mike. I mean, that's just so important. I do tend to work with a lot of people who are extraordinarily powerful minds, strategic thinkers, Mm -hmm. uh, very much like looking for the right answer. And they're often very good at finding the right answer. You know, people who manage finances, logistics and, you know, system architects that just somehow always find me. And there's that deep need to learn to like presence, what does the emotion feel like in my body? What's actually going on? Because, because you're right, it can be hard to even shift the narrative if you're not feeling like if I couldn't Mm -hmm. feel that I was able to feel the anxiety. That was a big part Mm -hmm. of it to know, hey, it's not just a thought. It's Mm -hmm. also this physical reaction. So maybe breath work or some movement or a walk or a push up or 10 push ups or whatever, something needs to happen besides just the mantra or the breath work or the meditation or the intellectualizing, you know, and and often people get caught in this trap in the personal growth world where we're, we're really we get into being a student, and we fail to be the scientist. Mm-hmm. And so it's all in the head, and it's all conceptual. And we keep looking for what's the next book, or the next thing I'll learn or the next YouTube video that will make the shift, And ultimately, it's always going to be it's learning, but it's experimenting, that's really going to help us make the shift going to step into that scientist archetype
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and to to bring it into the language that you were saying before it's your nervous system will then it then adopts and learns a a new way that was maybe Mm -hmm. unavailable before right you you approach the girl that at one point your nervous system flared up and your heart rate elevates and you're sweating Mm -hmm. and then you turn away your nervous system learns there's another possibility here, and that is yeah. way more important than anything that we can learn in a book some yeah. something that uh, I think might be tied to your embodiment practices and mm-hmm. your awareness around embodiment. you named the mankind project mm-hmm. as an experience that you attended right it was it was in person yeah. and uh, yeah, I, w- I would love to hear a little bit, I guess, about what what's men's work, right? The Mankind uh-huh. Project does a little bit around men's work right. and rites mm-hmm. of passage is something that I'm finding mm-hmm. myself curious about. It's something that is missing, I think, mm-hmm. very much so in most, like most of society, certainly Western society. So could you yeah. share a little bit more about your experience with the Mankind Project and men's work and uh, what rites of passage, like a little bit more about what that means.
1: Sure. And and, I mean, I'm not a representative of Mankind Project. And so, uh, you know, I'll, uh, I'll keep it simple. Um, Mm -hmm. That's a 35 plus year old organization that has been doing uh, men's rites of passage weekends and men's um, circles, like Mm -hmm. weekly or biweekly circles. Um, across the globe in a wonderful way. It's really kind of Jungian based. A lot of work with the king, warrior and magician and lover archetypes. Um, a lot of work around integrity, around basic emotional intelligence, learning to speak truth, and, and, and there's some beautiful shadow work being done. So that's a great organization. Check it out. Yeah. Men's Rites of Passage is quite a fascinating topic, right? And and I want to say that it's something that I do think is very much missing in our culture. Healthy rites of passage. You know, there's there was a big shift at a certain point in the Industrial Revolution where, you know, little Joes and little Mike's didn't hang out in the field or in the, you know, metalworking shop or whatever dad and uncle and grandpa did to feed the family. We used to hang out and spend time with them and learn from them and watch their way of being. Not that they were modeling the best version of masculinity, but we spent a lot more time around men that are mentoring us. And we spent a lot more time seeing people go through different stages of life. Mm. And at a certain point, we compartmentalized everything. You know, dad went to work at the factory or, you know, went off to war or whatever happened. And then you go to a school where There's like a teacher telling you who to be and what to be, and it's very regimented and structured and disciplined and um, and we lack the time around other men that's healthy and that's not about being graded and where we get to see each other really living in a real way, in an authentic way. So it's one thing that's just important about men's work and men's groups and men's communities is. For many of us, we don't have healthy relationships with other men. We don't have a healthy relationship with masculinity. Uh, we don't learn to call each other out consciously and lovingly and help each other. Uh, you know, every man for himself is certainly the ethos that I remember growing up around in America, and so. I find there's a lot of men that are that, that just don't trust other men a lot of men they're afraid of other men there are a lot of men that are always trying to intellectually or physically dominate other men there's other there's men who just avoid men and so just having any kind of men's group circle weekends that alone is powerful it just is healthy relationship with men is not as hard as we think we just don't have spaces for it in our culture we just don't have it as something that has been celebrated and modeled as normative Right. But when guys get into the right group, the right container, some you know guidelines are set, someone's modeling honesty and vulnerability or a certain way of being. It, it's useful, this deep, rich, vulnerable connection, meaningful connection is useful, actually, I think with men. So that, that's one side of the fence. You know, the other side, I, I'm not a, um, I'm not like an anthropologist or a mythologist. And so I don't have the best knowledge of rites of passage histories, but lots of cultures have had rites of passages, lots of cultures have had for both men and women, boys and girls, some of them brutal and horrific, some of them wonderful and fantastic. All of them saying, this is a psychologically symbolic moment that you're going to go through some sort of trial to get to the other side to be fully initiated as an adult member of this tribe. And we have nothing like that around here, except for like gangs and uh, frat fraternities and sororities. There's very little initiatory rights. And what happens is when you don't give everyone, men, boys, but also girls and women, you don't give them challenges to help them get through to the next level of from, from teenage or adolescent to some responsible adulthood, they create challenges they create challenges with what you see in in violence they create challenges with what you see in the debauchery that happens in a lot of fraternity sorority culture they create challenges by you know at a young age getting into you know substances that they're not doing consciously and are not very helpful for them whatever it may be but there's something about this adolescent early 20s age that everyone goes a little fucking crazy mm-hmm. And part of it, I believe, is because no one's saying, "Hey, psychologically, you need a ritual, you need a ceremony, you need elders, you need a, you need an obstacle to overcome." You know, the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell, so so perfectly, you know, brought into our consciousness and educated around, is something that exists inside of us. And if we're not given it in a healthy way in community, we create it, right? So, so that's one thing that's just vital: is we we need healthy Communities to do rites of passage work, um, and I, I think it's never too late. I've seen I've seen seventy year old men do men's weekends and like feel reborn. It's pretty amazing. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Thank you for sharing all that.
0: It's so important, man. Like it, I haven't been through a weekend of initiation like that, but I have been through many transformational experiences, and I've been a part yeah. of a couple of men's groups or or proxies to men's groups. Mm-hmm. where at first it feel it felt incredibly uncomfortable for me to be sharing mm-hmm. there's there's so many as i as i check my own biases at the times as i'm i'm tuning mm-hmm. into that there were i had so many biases around talking to men in general but then talking to different age groups like that's a certain mm-hmm. thing that's conditioned in our culture people from different race or ethnicity There's, there's just so much that we aren't equipped with or taught how to be. And like Mm -hmm. you named with our school system, it's very structured in ways to memorize information really, or learn a skill to that applies to a trade that you'll do in your job. And we're, we're left with this massive void around the a lot of times they're termed soft skills. And I, th- I really yep. think it's a bullshit term. Like, <laughs> what does that even yeah. mean? Right. It's it's the most important thing. We, we don't know how to be with other people in their discomfort. We don't yeah. know how to be with ourselves in our own discomfort. Yeah. We, we certainly don't know how to be around other men with any amount of vulnerability and unless we actively go there on our own. So it's yeah. really important, man. I, I wish that our society valued that a little more inherently yeah
1: and it's a little i just want to say more thing about this it's yeah. a little paradoxical you know we are at a time where it, you know the the current the current or past versions of masculinity the the patriarchal nature of our world they're not gonna they, they're not gonna hang out anymore they're right. not welcome anymore they're not gonna exist they'll hold on for dear life maybe for a few generations more they're, they're passing, right? They're changing. And there's this need for men to learn to open our hearts and learn to change our, our relationship to our worth and our value in the world. And there's this need to deconstruct a lot of the toxic elements of masculinity and patriarchal capitalism that has us acting in oppressive ways, and self harming ways, and in isolating ways and in really dangerous ways for ourselves and for others. The paradox is that there's a real true benefit of doing it with other men, Mm -hmm. the constructs around how we relate to each other as men can be broken down in many ways. But one of the most the biggest opportunities is to do it where we get to actually be with each other in new ways, whether it's lovingly challenging someone with ferocity in an accountability process, or whether it's you know crying with them after a really powerful process where someone like, you know, re-experienced some bullying growing up, but then you know, reenacted standing up to the bully, and then you're holding each other because you're crying for this man's sadness and power emerging at once. Like there's something that's special about it. And so there's a lot of talk about like do men need to be doing men's work or men do men need to do femininity work or or do men need to be taught by women, or like how Yes, yes, to all of it. Yes. But yes, to all of it. Not one. Right. So I just, I have no dog in the game. I have no commercial benefit yeah. from saying that, right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't have an organization that pays me to do men's rites of passage or men's weekends. But it's so vital and important. in where we're at right now is that we can we can eat from the buffet of consciousness expansion and not just think mm-hmm. it's one thing or the other. We need our affinity groups, I, I believe.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of open hearts and consciousness expansion, yeah. one of the areas that I wanted to explore with you, and, and you named spirituality at, at maybe one or two points earlier, yeah. I wanted to explore psychedelics with you and other ways that you have opened your, your heart more, opened yourself to spirit, maybe opened yourself to the more ephemeral. And yeah. all the while, I want to say... I have never, like this, I'm, any, anytime I bring psychedelics into the conversation, I'm going to have to, I just want to fully disclose, I have not experimented with psychedelics personally. It's mm-hmm. a curiosity of mine. None of this is prescriptive medical advice. Right. It is just two guys sharing their thoughts and experiences. Right. All that said, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts.
1: Yeah. So it's a big topic. It's a big topic. And maybe I missed part of the question. Was there any qualifier, or just what do I think of psychedelics or what have I yeah. experienced? Oh, what would well, is- help me open heart? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And um, consciousness. Gotcha. Yeah.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha.
0: Well, it's a great
1: question. I I noticed when I was young and I would experiment with psychedelics, mostly almost exclusively with psilocybin, or what you know, back then everyone was just, just magic mushrooms, right? Like psilocybin and psilocin. And most people have heard of that at this point. But um, when I was younger, like in my my late teens and a little in my 20s, I'd experiment with recreationally and I always noticed that there were, you know, doorways, gateways, cognitive pathways that I could recognize, find or accidentally create with those substances that, oh, hey, that's still open the next morning when I've come down and I've returned that I always thought was super fascinating so I, I knew from a, uh, from experimentation recreationally that like these are powerful to change the way we see the world and where we see ourselves I didn't know how to hone it I didn't know anything besides taking a giant handful of mushrooms and laughing for hours and you know realizing your, your body was ridiculous and just you know having fun with it. You know, what ended up happening, though, is I started getting into all this personal growth work and I had a few people that I admired that I listened to their podcasts and they were big into talking about psychedelics. And this is all the way back in like 2014. And I was just super interested in what they were saying about it. I was super interested in the idea of it being around consciousness and, and ceremonies. And then and I heard about ayahuasca and I'm like, oh, that sounds like some painful shit that Joe wants to do, you know? <laughs> so. I just happened to be in a place where it fit, right? I was 2018, I was going through my last breakup. And I was one of the big features of the end of that relationship was I saw myself growing tremendously spiritually and wanting to do more conscious community and activities that were in a spiritual realm. It seemed very important to me, it seemed inevitable. The person I was with at the time was so scarred from religion that she just couldn't even like hear the word spirituality without a reaction. And so when I uncomfortably ended that relationship and went through that trauma, it was just it felt like the the gateway was open, like this is my time to really explore and experiment. And within days of even initiating that breakup, before I even moved out, I was at a training. Uh, another tra- something else that changed my life called Liberation Logic, and totally changed my outlook on life. But but I met a woman who said, "Hey, I'm going to an ayahuasca ceremony. It is you know an hour away." And I was like, "Wow, I thought you had to go to the jungle and all that stuff." And so I just said, "Great. Can I you know can I get the information? Can I join? Because I've been curious for two or three years." Mm-hmm. And then the opportunity to liberate myself spiritually by the end of that, because of that end of that relationship happened, it just showed up two, three days later. Uh, So I went into it, really looking at it as spiritual experience, I went into it really looking at it as this is something that can can be powerful and to help me connect with some sort of higher power, which i would never really connected with my entire life. And I would say that my first literally my first ayahuasca ceremony uh, taught me how to grieve. Uh, I, I knew how to be sad. I knew how to be down. I went through that grief process after my marriage. But in that evening, I just laid in the ball sobbing for hours. Mm -hmm. And that was my journey. No no sacred geometry, no you know, riding a purple dragon to visit my ancestors in a, in a 12th dimension. Like people talk about, it was just a lot of physical energy moving and a lot of sobbing followed by like a sense of peace and an awareness for the first time in my life. Oh, I think every particle in this room is, is some element of what we try and call God, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Everyone, the voices and the candlelight and the air and this sleeping bag, I'm like, oh, these are all things that beings in this universe have created. This is all in some way divine. The idea of like this, this monotheistic vision of what God is is not fitting because it's so expansive and so vast that we would never have language for it really. We try so hard. We're so cute, humans. Like we try so hard to have language for divinity and for for like whatever the bigger intelligences in the universe. But so that was my first experience with ayahuasca and with with psychedelics as a consciousness-expanding thing. But then 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 I started looking again at the quote-unquote magic mushrooms, the psilocybin, because that's that's a lot easier. It's a lot more accessible mm. than an ayahuasca ceremony. And basically I was really interested in how people were using it for personal growth. And that's when I started to experiment with microdosing. Microdosing changed my relationship with my body. I feel like even though I've been doing all this work to embody for probably six, seven years at that point, it just gave me much more access, microdosing psilocybin, much more access to feel my emotions in my chest, in my stomach, you know, in my jaw. It just all of a sudden you know, whatever it did, that slight change to the default mode network allowed for more awareness. That is certainly heightened when I'm on, you know, these medicines, these substances. But again, the awareness, the consciousness remains after the ceremony, mm-hmm. after the microdose, after the, the hike dose or the hero's whatever it is, a lot of the time, these bits of awareness remain. The other thing that tends to happen, I find is the things we experience on these substances, even if they can be explained with all of the new science, with the new neuroscience we have, and all the clinical trials, even if they can be explained biologically, they feel so tremendously real, and mystical, and unexplainable, when on the substance, Mm -hmm. that it just naturally, to me, Again, I also don't recommend it for anyone. This is not prescriptive. I mean, do your work, figure out if it's right for you. Talk to someone that knows something about this stuff. But what I've noticed is you just can't help but realize, hey, that thing I experienced while on these, whatever I call them, medicines, drugs, plant medicines, psychedelics, entheogens, whatever, these beautiful substances from nature is what I like to call them usually. It was real, it was an awareness, it was a way of seeing the world that now I still have a piece of, no matter what. I can't let go of it. You're also a little more experimental, like you might listen to different music, you might Mm -hmm. look at some art that you wouldn't normally, because some friend said, well, when you do that mushroom, you better look at so-and-so, right? So there's just these natural ways of psychedelic culture plus the plants and the substances, expand our consciousness, open us up to believing more realities and more experiences. And that's before we even get into the realities of the transpersonal psychology that often is occurring with these substances, the archetypical experiences, the experiences of being able to feel other people's energy, which is a very real thing. We now have science to prove that. Well, on a lot of psychedelics, you can physically you can feel the response; it's there. You can feel a plant's energy, and and so they're just there's so many transformative capacities in these in these substances. And there's so many transpersonal opportunities, people having experiences of reliving stuff from generations and generations and generations ago, what, what is It's is it past life. Is it memories in the collective unconsciousness that you then have a portal to who knows, we, we may never know these deeper questions. And doing these substances even if you're super focused on the science and you're reading every clinical trial and you're you know you're 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 you've absorbed everything that paul stamets has done and and that johns hopkins is publishing and stanford and nyu and you know king's college like you still are left with tons of mysteries and it's really good for spiritual expansion to be able to rumble with mystery to be able to not know. And it's really good for spiritual expansion to be able to kind of have a more animistic view of things and see all things as having some some divinity or some divine nature, which psychedelics tend to lead people there. And they're very powerful for creativity. So like, I don't wanna make this a, a, a commercial for that, but my experience is it's been really transformative and tremendous. And you mentioned that you listened to me on another podcast where I talked about how yeah. microdosing, I truly believe helped with the depressive period in my life, depressive episode. And um, every once in a while doing a, a, a psilocybin journey that's not microdose, but not like a big crazy hero dose. Sure feels like a mindset and nervous system reset every few months, just feels like something gets fully refreshed. Things feel a lot easier afterwards for a few weeks, for sure, and things feel in flow and um, new practices begin. And So integration, though, is the thing that we need to talk about because everyone's talking about psychedelics and everyone's talking about going to retreats and everyone's talking about micro dosing for creativity. And people are talking about integration a little bit, but there isn't that much di- being done or that much being offered. And so to me, psychedelics like going on the, the mushroom journey or the LSD journey or the MDMA journey, it's it's just like going. It's just like reading that amazing book that's so informative Unless you take action, unless you create new practices, unless you change your relationships because of it through courage, they actually won't change your life. You might be a little cooler to talk to. I'd, I'd probably hang out with you more because you'd be really, you know, I mean, some more interesting ways of seeing the world, but they won't necessarily create shifts. Like going to that workshop that you loved and felt amazing, but then a month later, nothing stuck. What we need to talk about is psychedelics can be exactly that same thing. You're yeah. looking for the solution in, in a peak experience rather than allowing a peak experience to inform what your next stage of practice or transformation or, or just straight up integration of parts of yourself really is. So thanks for giving me that. Uh, okay. and, and, and I'm really I'm serious enough about this that I've formulated some integration protocols uh, I, I took a training by psychedelics today, which is really for clinicians and therapists, even though I'm not a therapist. So I'm really looking forward to, to, to finding the best best ways to help people, both in integration circles because I, I co-lead an integration circle in D.C., um, but also in individual one on one like support, coaching, count, guidance, if you will, on how do we do this well with intention? How do we take the messages and transform them into meaning in our life?
0: Yeah. Well, what I, what I hear you saying with not only with psychedelics, but with some of the other stuff that you have mm-hmm. brought up with, whether it's book, podcasts, it, other experiences, in a lot of ways they are, they can be, especially with psychedelics, the portals mm-hmm. that bring awareness yeah. to something or completely shift our worldview mm-hmm. and awareness on its own is not going to, it's like you said, it'll make us more, maybe more interesting to mm-hmm. talk to about certain things but it's not going to actually shift any results in our in our lives and that I've right. never thought about how connected at least in my mind it makes sense that a, a book could be the same in a lot of ways it, it changes our worldview we we connect to the story whatever it is um Psychedelics is also a portal that changes it Mm -hmm. could be the way that we view our relationship to ourselves with others with humanity at large Mm -hmm. with nature. I I heard you naming connection to like this plant is alive and there's a real energy to it. Yeah. Right. And that and that not just being something that we know in our head. It's something that you Mm -hmm. feel. Feel. Yeah. Right. So uh yeah, yeah, there's I I love the way that you you're invitation is always to research, do do the work around it, then if you do the experience, how can this be applicable in your life? How can you do something with yeah. this? How can it have utility? And I, I'm really appreciating that. From here, I wanted to just kind of leave it to you. Is there anything that mm-hmm. feels really alive for you and your work mm-hmm. that we have not touched on today so far?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I, I guess so. Right? Like, the, the great thing about this interview is is you haven't explicitly asked me about my work. And, <laughs> and that's a double edged sword, right? Because you want to go to podcasts and you want to like, you know, invite people to work with you. But um, I love the free flowing conversation. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I work with a lot of humans, I, I, I've positioned myself as a men's coach, but I've always got, you know, somewhere between like, two and five. Uh, women that work with me Mm -hmm. per year or so, and and, it rolls around. And um, I work with a lot of people that are hyper. They've spent their whole life living in their head and living very boldly career wise, successfully career wise, but then really, truly not having necessarily what they want because they're not they're not courageous in their personal life, mm. or they've been courageous in their personal life, but it was all based on old values, old beliefs, old identities that they adopted at a young age, and now it's time and then it's t- now time to recreate from a new place, right? But what I'm finding a lot is there's this intellectual nice guy in the world or gal. Right, I'm thinking of a new client. I, I love. Her. She's amazing. She's in a great place in life to do some transformative work. But like, she fits in this archetype perfectly. Kind, sweet, creative, good team member, recognized for their ability to to think. They're like like I said, systems architects and you know CFOs and VPs of strategic partnership and people that. Um, digital health implementations and they're like running big projects or running big departments, it tends to be the type of client that works with me. They often struggle at times too with anger. Mm. I've just, I've consistently seen this link between people who are really attached to their work identity, people who are very hyper intellectual, extremely capable at a, a head level, you know, at an intellect level, and then there's this thing where they either extraordinarily repress anger, and they never do it, and they do what I often call like the the middle-aged uh, white guy laugh, <laughs> like when they're actually angry about something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was a real laugh, by the way. I'm looking at him, so that was a real laugh. But, uh, but I, I love that description. <laughs> See, <laughs> yeah, oh, oh, oh. I'm actually very uncomfortable, but I'm going to laugh instead. Yeah, we all do it in many ways. But when we make a joke about something that really was hurt, hurt us, hurt our feelings, right. so there's almost this like middle ground between being like the bold kick ass, take, take, you know, take kick ass and take names, take the world by storm kind of energy out there in the world who is successful. And this more like, well, I'm actually going to be the nice one. I'm going to be the team player. I'm going to give um and that there's a struggle with anger there's this repression of their power and so i just wanted to get into that a little bit i wanted to talk a little bit about that um and it aligns well with this conversation Uh, but i'm just going to pause there since you know you asked is there anything else i want to talk about i started unpacking a little bit what's coming up for you around this
0: (laughs) one of the one of the things that's coming up for me is, well, I, it sound, I'm like a perfect client for Joe in, in a lot of ways, too. So <laughs> I'll just I'll say that I, I certainly have been the, the nice guy who at times has been in full denial that anger is even an option or something that exists in me and have been I've ridden my intellectual high horse for a lot of my life been praised for how smart I am how great I am at solving problems how how good I am at memorizing the basketball player statistics and what college they went to and right all this different stuff and uh it's only in the last few years or so that I've opened myself up to actually Mm -hmm. my greatest genius is way deeper than that it's it's way Mm -hmm. deeper than something I could ever figure out in my head Mm -hmm. so that's that was one thing that comes up to me that probably has <laughs> nothing to do with my line of questioning, <laughs> oh, but, can, but you can relate. So that's beautiful. I can relate. That, that, that'll make
1: the rest of the questioning. Amazing.
0: Yes, exactly. And I, I know that many people can relate a lot. There's a lot of people pleasers that connect to mm-hmm. what I do. Right. Cause we, a lot of the times we coach who we most relate to. So, mm-hmm. That aside, I, I would love to hear you just keep riffing uh, yeah. and going with uh, what you what you already teed up around anger right. and and how you help those people be with yeah. it. Yeah,
1: yeah. You know what I often find is people in that scenario there, there's 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 a couple of tracks. One is all they've ever learned to do is repress anger mm-hmm. and be a good boy mm-hmm. or girl, and you know anger is not okay. So, what happens when we repress something is it eventually just gets so powerful that we can no longer keep it in check. So I've noticed that there's been a handful of people that come to me in the last couple of years, especially, a couple handfuls where they say, "I'm like, really pride myself on being calm, ungrounded, I on the guy you want around in an emergency." Uh, I'm the guy you, you who will cool other people down when they're getting hot and all of a sudden I'm having these outbursts and I feel for them because they in many cases learned at a very young age, ugh, anger's not safe, right? either they got in trouble because they showed anger and acted upon it because we were young and didn't know any good strategies to cope or somebody was really hurting them a lot with anger, mm-hmm. right? And so their, 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 their solution beautifully, commendably is I don't do anger. I'm never going to hurt people like that. And so essentially what ends up happening with a lot of the time is that means you're probably not that aware of what frustrates you, upsets you, takes you off. And if you do, you minimize it. And anger is an, the most amazing tool to teach us what we desire, what's important to us, what our values are, what we're willing to defend and protect. at such a deep level that our body makes us get into that mode for us. Mm. So there's also this disconnection I find in the clients I work with, with what they want, they don't necessarily know what they want, or they went after what they wanted, but they're not, it's not what they wanted, they're not happy or they got what they wanted, but they still want more. Nothing satisfies. And a lot of that actually can be, in a strange way, linked back to this repression of anger. We are muting the part of us that tells us what's important, that tells us what's worth defending, that tells us what's worth going after and being courageous for and fierce for. So when we don't have ways to, we don't even know our needs, we often don't ask for our needs to get met, and we often do things like, hey, I can handle logistics because that's where my brain works. So let me do it for everyone all the time, every outing, every you know group vacation, I'm gonna do that. And I'm expecting something in return, but maybe I won't say it, or maybe I don't even know it. Right? Or I'm gonna find the way to be just constantly important because of how smart I am and because I have the right answer and because I can figure out the formulas. Well, that all leaves us in a pretty tricky spot when it comes to our personal lives, you know, needing to be validated because you're right and because you have the answer, and because you're a quick thinker and because you've studied hard and because you can run logistics and because you're organized, that becomes like a never ending pit in our our personal lives and our relationships. And so needs aren't getting met. You're not expressing yourself. You're repressing the part of you that teaches you what you desire. And so something's got to give at an energetic level, at a spiritual level, at a psychological level. And usually what it means is at a certain point, maybe it's late in life, maybe it's like, I've had a client come here recently, and they're in their mid fifties, or maybe it's someone in their like, 20s who learned who kicked ass in their career, and learned that like, the way that they actually manage, there's this anger energy that comes out of them. And as they're ascending to higher levels that no longer cuts it, right. Mm-hmm. So so what I for me, what I'm often doing, I'm often really working with people to help them have a better understanding of emotions beyond what's being taught at a corporate level when we talk about emotional intelligence. You know, uh, the giveaway, the the giveaway on that is the word, the language, emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. It's still framing it from intellectual understanding and knowing it's still framing it from the head down. And so a lot of us are now being taught emotional intelligence, which gets us by and makes sure that we have you know, better 360 scores or whatever, and no one gets in trouble with HR, and there's a more, quote, unquote, compassionate vibe. Um, but those aren't the skills to have emotional competence and emotional fluency at home. And so I really work with people to get a deeper understanding of, like you said, where do you feel these emotions in your body? Let's talk about where you, how you were imprinted by your significant Family members and adults about the, each emotion. Let's disco- discover and explore what is your intellectual relationship with each emotion and how does it actually show up in your life? What are your responses? People can tell us, Mike, sometimes that, like, hey, uh, I've been getting pissed off and like throwing something. I threw a shirt the other day. What's up with that, Joe? But it's rare that when I ask, hey, so. When anger comes up, how do you what do you normally do to handle it? What do you do to understand it? What do you do to to work with it? We don't know. People don't know. So so we have to learn about our patterns, and we have to learn about what we might want to change. And we'll, so we'll work hard on that, but also we'll work on helping that person express creatively, because very often, very smart, interesting people have put all their energy into being smart and interesting and there's a creative side of them that's ready to explode you'd be surprised how sometimes my coaching is so simple oh you've been thinking about playing guitar for a while sign up by a class haven't done a class by next session Mm -hmm. oh you know you used to paint all the time before this this promotion and now you don't well we need to you need to express that part of yourself we also work on a really deep understanding of values. If I don't know what my values are today, I can't really truly understand or communicate why I was triggered, why I felt slighted, what boundary was crossed, what expectation was crossed, what value has been violated. That's important to me. So we work on the values uh, work, the emotional fluency and competence work, and actually just do a lot of just simple presencing activities with people, getting them to be able to name and label and feel what their emotions are, what their, what their bodily sensations are. You know, a lot, a lot of us come to the table with not being able to do that at all. And so, you know, I'll assign things like, Hey, you know, three minutes a day of close your eyes, take deep breaths, do a body scan. And when you're done, uh, you know, consult this emotional wheel and pick out all the words that align with things you felt. Right. Um, or do a daily, check-in where you just immediately journal, like, what did you feel in your body? What were the dominant emotions? Not the thoughts, but the dominant emotions. It's a lot of just helping people get access to it and presence it and then see their patterns and learn to work it differently. Um, Often the juice is, you probably know this, the juice is in what emotions people avoid. Yes, right? You avoid confusion. Let's get you into a position where you can be not knowing. You know, you avoid anger. Let's find a way to express it in a healthy way. Maybe you need to take up some kickboxing or some weightlifting and listen to death metal or something, or maybe you just need to actually have that conversation with your boss about a boundary that was crossed years ago that you never talked about or your wife or whatever it is. Right. So what people are avoiding and hiding from is typically where there's a lot of opportunity to expand. And I find that like once we open up one or two of the emotions very consciously, the rest start to just kind of a lot more space opens for them. To feel more of them and relate to them differently. Yeah,
0: it's it's very important work. I mean, whether or not someone identifies anger as the number one thing that they are avoiding, it I found myself connecting with how applicable that is to any number of different things. Right, it it could be Mm -hmm. like you said, it could be confusion, not knowing. Mm It could be a fear around making mistakes. There's there's perfectionism. Yeah. There's, there's so many things that we, at, at a significant energetic cost, we, we try and control or yeah. do things in a way so that we don't have to feel these feelings we don't want to feel. Mm-hmm. And what, in my experience, what happens, whether it's with myself or with a client, is at first, it can be, it feels like we're opening up the floodgates and it could be really tough to be grounded in these different feelings.
1: Mm, Yes,
0: And so there's a, there's a skillful way in which like, I'm certainly very unfinished here as a, as a coach and practitioner, but there's a skillful way in which we can help folks familiarize themselves with these different feelings, because it can be very challenging in the beginning. Mm -hmm. But inevitably, and invariably, what happens afterwards is you realize your full vitality, and aliveness, Mm. right? If you open yourself up to all that, it's, uh, I think everyone, if you really press anyone on what they most deeply desire in their life, they want to feel great, they want to love their Mm -hmm. life, they want to be at peace. Yeah, the, the easiest way to access all of that, Or the simplest way, maybe not the easiest, is to allow yourself to be with the vitality of your body. Mm -hmm. Period stop. Right.
1: Perfect. Perfect. That's so important because the one thing I just didn't mention is we we try and eradicate the narratives around that lead to repression too. So that Mm -hmm. that's an important part. Is like. All right, we got to figure out where did you learn it wasn't safe and how, and then like, how do you let go and allow it? And and so you know, so often this seems so over the plate to me, but so often it's magical. Um, a lot of the time, people don't recognize the difference between experiencing anger as emotion and responding or reacting with yes. anger as an action. It's it's just mind boggling to me and and heart chilling, I wish it was heartwarming, but like, that so often, like, well, anger is terrible, because that's what hurts people. You know, anger is terrible, because that's what domination comes from. Actually, it's, you know, it's information, it's an emotion, it's, it's a feeling, it's power, we, we don't have to act from it. Mm -hmm. So that's simple tweak in awareness. And then, then, of course, there's a lot of work to practice You know, the mindfulness allows us to create space, but yeah, no, no repression anymore. That's, I find a lot of, uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of, a lot of the, a lot of great, great work, uh, spiritual work, personal growth work is well intentioned, but with the way it's taught isn't nuanced enough mm-hmm. and people end up using it as repression of emotions, repression of sadness, repression of anger, repression of dissatisfaction, right? The whole like kind of the misinterpretation of, of Buddhism, I think, unfortunately, mm-hmm. comes up mm-hmm. a lot. Right, it comes up a lot, and then the misinterpretation of more of like the Tony Robbins style of like we can just outpower our emotions <laughs> and feel the ones we want, and not, you know, like that's we're still working, working with domination logic and power structures about dominating from head down. But yeah, yeah, I'm about to get pretty tangenty, so let me stop.
0: i'm loving it joe and i i I love the way that we've just riffed here and i think we we covered almost everything that i wanted to hit today so Mm. i'm really i'm grateful for the conversation that we've had and i i just have a couple of more questions they're they're more rapid fire in nature they certainly don't Mm. have to be rapid fire answers i've got time
1: but i'll try and tighten them up
0: there's no need. I love the way that you've been, you've been yeah. eloquently just delivering lots of. I ask a little question, and then J- yeah. Joe takes it and runs with it. So, first first question I wanted to <laughs> run by you: uh, What's an ordinary moment in your everyday life that brings you great joy?
1: Oh my gosh, what a perfect question for this moment. So, I'm I'm about, I'm gonna get married in three and a half weeks, uh, um, to. So it'll be my second marriage um, to an, a, I want to say the woman of my dreams, who is, of course, amazingly fallible, like all of us and not like a fantasy purpose. She's just everything I wanted. And our relationship is so much richer and more beautiful than I even intellectually imagined when I started to dream up my vision for life, um, mm-hmm. around love and relationship. And, um, and we have this wonderful cat, Delilah, who I, who's just like, she's been with Natalie, my partner for 10 years, and now she adopted me very quickly. And a few months ago, we just got a, a dog, Darla. So a very ordinary moment recently is in the morning. I get up early. I've done my my workout, my strength training or my yoga, and I've done my meditation. often I'm like just wrapping up on the mat and um, my partner will come down and you know, my dog will spring up and say hi to her. And now that the dog and the cat aren't terrified of each other and or trying to murder each other, and they can be in the same space, like, our cat will be on the steps and our dog will be on the couch. And I'm just gonna say it, I don't have her permission, but she sometimes just sings in the morning. Uh-huh. She, she doesn't consider herself a singer. Actually, she laughs because she thinks she's a terrible voice. But she comes down. She's happy. I'm on the floor finishing my like yoga or my stretches after my strength training. The cats there, the dogs. It's just I cry, I've cried like three times mm. in the last two weeks because it's just so beautiful. Um, it's so simple uh, and it's wonderful. And and imagine what I'll be. I'll be a, a blubbering you know person on the floor. Imagine when we have kids. I'm like, well, how am I going to keep it together? It's just the simplicity of 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 having. Uh, a multi-species family that feels mm. so beautiful and um fully committed to. It's just these moments like that are beautiful.
0: Fuck yeah, man. That was so beautiful. <laughs> I felt my heart open up a, a shit ton as you <laughs> as you described that, man. Thanks for sharing mm. that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, I kind of just want to sit with that for a second. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks again for that. What is something that people would be surprised to know about you?
1: Hmm. Oh, my God. Okay, i was just asked this yesterday. <laughs> uh, for two and a half years straight, I've had a weekly call, co thing, that a coach of mine leads. It's just really just deep inquiry work. And that was in yesterday's call. So how magical is that? Um, you know, I'll, I'll share this. Uh, I'm a person who almost 10 years ago, lost over 150 pounds, I've kept it off. I've been like, 190. I was 340, even in my mid 20s, right? I've been 190 or less since late 2013, August 2013. So almost nine years. And I've done my coaching training and eating psychology, and I've helped people lose lots of weight and get healthy. Um, I still very much get into pockets where I struggle with binge eating. Mm. And I did not identify that way for a long time, right? And then only in the last year or two, I've started to really go, okay, that is what it is. They call it what it is. You've done it your whole life, and just because you've really dramatically transformed relationship with food and body doesn't mean that this one behavior that still causes some challenge in your life that can feel compulsive, uh, it does. It's not gone, right? So it's this piece of like I've expressed a lot of service to discipline and identity around helping people be disciplined while still being open-hearted and flowing in a way. Um, but yeah, that's something that still feels, uh, like I wouldn't say out of control, but still feels like, wow, there's something there that I don't share that often. And Mm. I don't like to, to be known that, that way. I'd like to be known as, well, he transcended and transformed and stuff mm-hmm. with food and body is perfect. But no, I still really struggle a lot with body image, even though I'm really good at helping people access healthier mm-hmm. body image. I still sometimes look in the mirror and go, what the, f-? like, what is that? Mm-hmm. And then I see a picture of myself from the same day and I'm like, well, I'm crazy. I look great. You know, mm-hmm. so all the body image and and, and eating stuff, it's it's still, it still challenges me a lot these days. Yeah.
0: And I, I really appreciate you sharing that. Well, before I ask my final question, where can folks connect with you, find your work, and engage with you online or otherwise?
1: Yeah, thank you, thank you. So, well, if anyone's listening and there happen to be in the the DC area, one of my newest projects is this DC Psychedelic Integration Circle. Mm-hmm. Um, so people are local. Uh, you can go ahead and it's, we're on meetup for now i just bought the url so we haven't gone there yet but for about six months we've been starting to create a community that's really forming and gelling um, around people who are curious or and or experimenting with psychedelics and so if you're in dc come find me there on meetup dc in-person psychedelic integration circle um, online you know joe or you can just email me joe at dropthearmor.com and on facebook i have a, a Facebook group, Drop the Armor Dojo. Those are all ways that people can connect. Um, I'm slow to a lot of social media platforms, but I've been I've been on Instagram, putting out more content there recently. Um, but you know, if if something you heard here today really resonated, and you had more questions, or you were looking for, you know, you're in a position of looking for support from a coach, just reach out, just email me, Joe at dropthearmor.com. Um, I'm I'm a person, and I'll answer the email, and we can figure out if. If I'm the right resource for you or if someone else's. Awesome, Joe. I'll link to all of that
0: and any cool. resources that you named in the show notes. Mm-hmm. And the the final question that I ask, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. Mm-hmm. We kicked off the conversation by saying, let's mm-hmm. let's hope it's a meaningful one. Yeah. And I would love to hear in your words, what does it mean to live a meaningful life? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. Um, I, I actually think it's a it's a skill set, a tremendous skill set or capacity or you could even say spiritual technology uh, to have a firm way to create maps of meaning in your life. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's a bit of like a circular answer. But in reality, I think having a meaningful life often comes down to how do you take all of the the lifeiness of life, all the stuff of life, and and create some sort of significance from it on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Do we know what's important enough to us so that we can really focus our attention and energy there? Do we know how to learn from experiences that are challenging or painful? Do we know how to revel in rest and joy and play and 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 these all are not there's no formula for these it's dependent on you creating your own sense of, of meaning and your own ways of framing things that are healthy and um you know maybe positive maybe not positive maybe just rich so that's one level of an answer another level of an answer is 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 to just embrace all of life to be really here to feel it to not just live from the head, but to really live in the heart and the guts and the body, to prioritize presence in a world that prioritizes performance, you know, to really live a life of courage in a world that wants to sell us comfort everywhere, mm. you know, to, to choose love. It's hard to, it I mean, for almost 10 years, I've been doing like love over fear practices and choose love practice. I still have to. My coach still has to say to me, okay, well, then this week, make it your goal to look at everyone through the lens of love, you know, like, so choosing love over fear, it's a choice, and it's a regular choice. Um, They're these simple shifts, like I talked about emotional intelligence to like emotional competence and fluency. So that, to me, is what what's creating a meaningful life is go after what you want, be courageous, live from the heart, really trying to cultivate presence. Don't deny the the ups and downs of life you know i have a mentor and his email signature is just his first name and then underneath it no one buys a ticket for a flat roller coaster (laughs) ride the roller coaster and stop complaining when you're on a roller coaster because you 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 don't you, you know you've outgrown bumper cars right so anyway
0: wow well a wonderful ending to a wonderful fully alive interview, my friends, I, I so enjoyed having you on that, that last line is going to stick with me. I'm tempted (laughs) to change my email signature. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, man, I'm I'm a huge, we've only connected a couple of times, but just from listening to you on other podcasts and, and being in conversation with you the couple of times that we have been, I'm a big fan of the way that you're showing up to life right now. Uh, showing up to do the work that you do and it's been really truly sincerely an honor and a privilege to have someone like you on my podcast man so Mm. thank you for joining
1: yeah thank you so much for having me for anyone who's listened this whole whatever hour and a half or something bless you bless you thank you so much for your attention and your time and energy it's the most important resources we have you
0: know yeah yeah Here. here And uh, to all the listeners, I hope that you have a great rest of your day or evening whenever you're listening and buy a ticket to the real roller coaster, not the flat one. (laughs) Uh, Take care. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's search for meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.